And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello and welcome everyone to Earth Destruction Directive, a Dai Kaiju podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. How are you doing everybody? My name is of course Luke Giaconetti and I am as always your host here on Earth Destruction Directive. I want to welcome everybody to the show and say I hope everybody enjoyed our previous episode where we took a look at the original. We took a look at 1954's Gojira as well as the 1956 American version Godzilla King of the Monsters. I thought that episode came out really well. Got some real nice feedback on it. I hope everyone had a chance to enjoy that one. But today we've got something different. We're moving into not one but two comics for us today. We're going to be taking a look at Dark Horse Comics Godzilla Color Special from 1992 as well as the next issue of Marvel's Shogun Warriors series which is number 12 from the very tail end of 1979. Uh, first, a little bit of Daikaiju news. Uh, Deadline, the website Deadline, has announced that Max Bornstein, who of course was the screenwriter for Godzilla 2014, has signed on to return uh, and write the sequel for the sequel Godzilla 2, which is due out sometime in the future. <laughs> Not really sure when the release date is going to be for Godzilla 2 yet, but Bornstein's coming back. I think this is uh, really good uh, news. I really enjoyed the story in the Godzilla 2014, so glad to see he'll be coming back and handling it. And for all intents and purposes, looks like he'll be also handling the uh, return of Mothra, Rodan, and King Ghidorah. Gauging from what we saw at Comic-Con International back this summer. Uh, credit to Toho Kingdom for breaking this news to me. Uh, also, worth noting, Max Bornstein, besides writing the sequel to Godzilla, is also going to be writing Legendary Pictures' uh, Skull Island, which is their new King Kong reboot. So, you know, that's a good uh, that's a good sign, I think, for that film. I'm, I'm excited. That, that announcement of Skull Island took me completely by surprise. I had no idea that was even in development. And then they announced it at... San Diego. So that was uh, that was really interesting. And I'm going to be watching development on that and see what kind of path that film takes as well. In toy news, Metacom is going to release three, count them, three Daikaiju-related vinyls in their Godzilla Vinyl Wars series here in the United States. Uh, these look like old Bullmark or Popey-style vinyls from the 70s and 80s, but they're made today. Uh, so they're not nearly as expensive as those old-school vinyls. Uh, we've got Godzilla 62, which is, of course, Godzilla from King Kong vs. Godzilla, the Showa Gigan, and Godzilla 74, which is Godzilla from uh, Godzilla vs. or Terror Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla and Terror of Mechagodzilla. The fourth figure in their first in this assortment is the Toei Spider-Man from the Spider-Man Tokusatsu show. Uh, really kind of a, a fun selection there. Uh, these you can get these through Diamond Distribution. So any place that you order your comics from the Diamond Previews catalog every month. And they're supposed to be in the September Previews catalog. Credit to Sci-Fi Japan for this bit of news. Similarly, X-Plus is also going to be releasing some new um, Daikaiju vinyls uh, in their large-scale Ultra Hero and Ultra Monster series. We've got Ultraman Tiga. We've got Zafi doing his Light Ray pose. Uh, the monster Garamon, Alien Cool, and the monster Arabunta. Now, uh, all but Garamon, though, these are Shonen Rick exclusives. Shonen Rick is X Plus's Japanese language uh, website. So if you want them, you'd better go through that site. You know, if you speak Japanese, find a middleman site. Mandarake is the one a lot of folks I know you online use. Or maybe check some of your Japanese-based online retailers like AmiAmi. Ami. They sometimes get these exclusives as, re as um, they'll buy them and then resell them. So if you want to take a look at those, these are tempting. I mean, Alien Cool looks fantastic. Zafi is really neat because he's got his hands out like he's shooting his beam. But way out of my price range. Uh, the list price on these is about 11,000 yen, uh, which is north of $100 a piece. So clearly, that is not in my future. Um, that's all the news I've got right now. If you hear any interesting news tidbits, go ahead and send them in. 
or send me a link and uh, we'll get them on here. Um, but uh, I think I'm going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and get right into our coverage of God the Godzilla Color Special right here on Earth Destruction Directive. Hey, Paul, what's up? Ah, not much. What's going on? I'm, I'm just a little confused lately. I Yeah, what else is new? Well, you know, m more than usual. I tried to go to get the shows that we just put up, and I was having problems finding them. Well, we having trouble finding them. Well, I couldn't find Back to the Bins. I couldn't find Avengers Spotlight. Of course, you can only find those when I actually edit them. <clears throat> and, um, <laughs> oh, you took but, the words you know, right out of my mouth. They're, they're on the feed, Bill. Yeah, I know. That's where I went. I went to the feed, but they weren't there. Yeah, no, you got to go to the feed. You got to go to the Back to the Bins feed. The Back to the Bins feed? What's yeah, that? Back to the Bins feed. You got to go to iTunes. You look for look up Back to the Bins, and you subscribe to the Back to the Bins feed. But I went to Two True Freaks. Yeah, we're on that feed too. What? Where? On the feed. Okay, wait a minute. Wait a minute. So you're saying that we're on? All right, so if I wanted to go find the shows that we've done, I'm going to go on to iTunes, and I'm going to click on Back to the Bins, and I'll find Back to the Bins and Avengers Spotlight in the feed. Exactly. I don't even know what I'm talking about! Bill, you go to the feed, you subscribe to the show, you subscribe to whichever show you want, and then you get it. It's that what simple. You just got to go to the feed. What show do I want? Back to the Bins. Where? An Avengers Spotlight. Oh, I'm so confused. They're on iTunes. They're on TwoTrueFreaks.com. You want them, uh, you get them. They're you all got there them? To you. All the uh, shows are there. They're still all available, Bill. All right, on the so... Feed. The feed. If you say feed one more time, I'm going to break your arm. Uh, Scott, could you tell him... Hey, man, don't, don't drag me into this, because... Uh... It's no skin off my ass. I'm on all the feeds. <laughs> Bastard. And we're back on Earth Destruction Directive. Let me just say that when Dr. Bill says, if you say feed one more time, I'll break your arm, cracks me up every time I hear it. I... <laughs> I'd love to do a Back to the Bins with Paul and Dr. Bill, but I'm afraid I would be laughing so much that the show would be unlistenable. But this is not Back to the Bins. This is Earth Destruction Directive, and we're taking a look at Godzilla Color Special, published by Dark Horse Comics, cover dated summer of 1992, released on August 4th of 1992. Big thanks to Mike's Amazing World of Comics for the info. Priced at a whopping $3.50, but it's 40 pages in color, no ads. So that's a little bit of an easier pill to swallow. Our writer is Randy Stradley. Writer and artist is Art Adams. Uh, letterer L. Lois Buhanlis. Colorist is Rochelle Manasse. And editor is Randy Stradley. 200 miles southeast of Honshu in a stormy night in the South Pacific. An American naval flotilla is en route to the small island Kiroyukishima on a rescue mission. Also speeding there in an ultra-advanced VTOL craft is Dr. Kazushi Kaguga's team, G-Force. For you see, the disaster they are saving the islanders from is Godzilla, the king of the monsters. Landing on the island, G-Force is met by their old acquaintance Dr. Kogenta, who has been living on the island for months studying the natives who, after World War II, shunned all technology and now live a simple life. They also meet Ukamune, the priestess and protector of the people who maintains the shrine of Gekido Jin. Gekido Jin is an ancient oni, or demon, who hundreds of years prior had tormented the island, killing the bravest of their warriors with ease. And whenever one was lucky enough to destroy Gekido Jin, he would reform himself in a larger and more powerful body drawing from the soil of the island itself. Finally, a wise and powerful monk gave himself willingly to the Oni, and with their spirits forever locked in combat, Gekidojin's body was petrified like a statue. Ukanume intends to sacrifice herself to release Gekidojin and defend the island. Back in the ocean, Godzilla makes short work of the American naval forces, resisting all of their firepower and sinking the massive cruisers with ease. He soon makes a landfall on the island, and G-Force scrambles to get the islanders into the safety of the caves beyond the shrine, and to set up their dart gun, an oversized biopsy dart with which they will capture tissue, blood, and nerve samples from Godzilla in order to create more effective weapons. 
Ukamune takes the opportunity to try to awaken Gekidojin, but she is caught in Godzilla's thrashing after he is shot in the foot with the dart gun and knocked out by a stream of rubble. Pulling her to safety, Kojenta, despite being a man of science, attempts to do the same, but he and the statue of Gekidojin are stomped underfoot. But from the rubble, Gekidojin rises. Smaller than Godzilla, the Oni attacks with his warhammer, but is quickly blasted to bits by Godzilla's atomic breath. But Gekidojin reforms larger. He attacks again and again is smashed by Godzilla, only to reform larger still. As the battle rages, Dr. Kaguka and his team rig a wire up to the dark gun's needle and rig a lightning rod to it in order to give Godzilla a major hot foot. The gambit works, and Godzilla is distracted long enough for Gekido Jin to reform nearly as large as the King of the Monsters himself. The two clash violently back and forth until they tumble off the edge of the island back into the ocean. With one final blast, Godzilla levels Gekido Jin and heads back to sea. Though the island and all of its inhabitants were saved, Kojenta shall never rest in peace, forever battling the spirit of Gekido Jin as the statue stands silent sentinel on the ocean floor. Wow. I, oh man, I love this comic. I've read this comic at least a hundred times, and I still love it to this day. Um, I, I can't say enough good things about it. This is the very first Godzilla comic that I ever bought. And I got this, like I said, right in the summer of 1992, right when it came out. I was 12 when I got this. You know, 91, 92 is when I was first getting really into comics. I remember I saw this excuse me, for the first time advertised on one of the back pages of an Entertainment This Month catalog when my, my brother had ordered something from ETM. I think it was like all five X-Force number ones or something. And so we got the catalog for a while and I remember seeing it. And what we used to do is we would then take what we wanted from the catalog and go to our LCS and have, uh, have Sue was our LCS owner, have her order them for us. And that's how I got this one. Um, I still have my original copy. I'm holding it in my hands right now. Um, now, my copy is signed by the artist Art Adams, and I met Art uh, back in June at Heroes Con up in Charlotte, North Carolina. What was interesting was I got to talk to him for a little bit, and he said that Toho was not really pleased with his art in the issue, which is amazing because his Godzilla looks fantastic. I mean, it really does. But he did say that some of the images from the comic ended up being used by Toho for promotional material anyway, so maybe their complaints weren't quite... Um, as, as uh, critical as it sounded initially. I'm guessing maybe they wanted it to look different, but not necessarily bad. Uh, the cover is a close-up of Godzilla's face, especially his eyes, which are dead center in the page. He looks very much in line with the Heisei designs for Godzilla, but when I first read this, I had not really seen them. Uh, at the time, 1992, the latest Godzilla film I had seen was Godzilla 1985. And... Uh, he has a different face in Godzilla 1985 versus Biolanti and Forward. Uh, you got to remember, at this time, Godzilla vs. Biolanti had not yet been released um, to video and on HBO yet. It was shortly after this. And obviously, Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah was, you know, that was just a, something we heard about in, uh, in, mag in uh, uh, genre magazines. It, it was no way you were going to ever actually see it. So he does look, like I said, the Heisai, but it's still a little bit different from what I, at the time, knew of as the Heisai Godzilla. Um, it, it's striking. Every time I see this, you can see his eyes staring right back at you. It's very neat. Uh, the back cover is a movie-style one-sheet pinup. And it shows um, Godzilla and Gakido Jin in the background, and then uh, G-Force and Ukamune in the foreground. But the only thing it's lacking from being uh, a like a movie-style poster is just credits and a title. <laughs> uh, it's really great that Dark Horse truly did this one, no ads. Not even the back cover is an ad. The inside front cover is the credits over a grayscale shot of Godzilla. And then the uh, inside back cover is a Dark Horse monthly checklist called the Finish Line. I'm pretty sure at this time the Finish Line was always on the inside back cover on Dark Horse's books, but I'm not 100% sure on that. I'd have to... Actually, my brother would probably know that because he was reading a lot of Predator and Terminator books from Dark Horse around this time. Getting into the story, turn it over to page two. 
Panel 1, we're introduced to the G-Force team here, and I'm not sure if these are the same characters from the earlier Dark Horse Godzilla comics. Uh, there was an, uh, an ongoing series, and they did a black and white special before this. I'm pretty sure they are, but I don't have those. I have the second of the uh, black and white trade paperbacks from the Dark Horse Godzilla, but I do not have the first one. One of the reasons why I went with this one, besides nostalgia, was that it was a complete story, and I don't don't have those earlier ones. I'm still tracking those down. The, it's in a nice squat collection, so if I find it, I'll just pick it up. But uh, we get a little bit of the character uh, personalities here. Everyone looks really good because it's Art Adams drawing it. Uh, but really, they're not so much the focus of the story. Kajenta and Okamune are really the human focus of the story, but really it's the monsters. You know, let's face that. Uh, page three, we get a full page awesomeness of Godzilla rising up out of the ocean. Um, and, he, and Adams just does a fantastic job. It's, it's all the scales are, and all the spines, and we see his teeth and his claws. Everything is really well detailed, but it's not so... The figure of Godzilla himself is not so covered in line work that we can't... Uh, that it gets muddy. The background where we see the storm clouds, that's all just cross-hatched in lines, and it looks really stormy, you know? I mean, it, it's you don't even see it initially. You only see Godzilla. It's only when you take in the whole page that you really see the back. Great work by by Adams all over this. Turning over to page 7, panels 1 through 4. Panel 1 is a large one, and then we get three inset panels showing the U.S. Navy unleashing their firepower on Godzilla. It's a standard sort of scene from a Daikaiju film, you know, the naval blockade. Uh, we get a great one in... Um, actually not too long after this in Godzilla vs. Uh, Mothra 1992. <laughs> actually probably came out a few months after this book did. But it looks fantastic under Adam's pencil. You know, the, the panel one itself has this great look of Godzilla roaring and his eyes are all just red because it's kind of a faraway shot. And the defiance as um, there's, you know, about a dozen missiles exploding or crashing into him. Really nice. And some great sound effects. We get blast, whoosh, boom! Boom, kapow, sploosh, and then Godzilla screeonk. Very cool. Uh, page 8, panel 3. Um, While well, Okamune is saying that she wants to use uh, the legendary god Gekido Jin to defend the uh, the island, um, one, of the, one of the folks in G4 says, You didn't see what Godzilla did to Tokyo last year or to Osaka two years before that. Um, the first part of that, I'm pretty sure, is a reference to the earlier Dark Horse comics, because I'm almost certain that Godzilla uh, attacks Tokyo. Before then, the last time Godzilla had been in Tokyo was Godzilla, uh, Return of Godzilla, so 1984, clearly a little bit earlier than what they're shooting for here, considering that part of the timeline of Godzilla vs. Biolanti is that it has been four years since, or excuse me, five years since the incident in Tokyo. But then he says Orosaka two years before. And that clearly is Godzilla vs. Biolanti, because Godzilla walks right through the middle of Osaka. And two years before, last year, 92, minus 191, minus 289. So a nice oblique reference there to Godzilla vs. Biolanti. I thought that was really nice. Uh, page 9 and 10. It's more of Godzilla against the Navy. Just wonderful work. There's not much more you can say about that. More great sound effects. Uh, you know, Godzilla obviously doesn't talk, so we got to convey some stuff through sound effects. God's, uh, at one point, Godzilla ducks underneath a cruiser and then comes up underneath it. It's a great image. That same idea still being used today. Pretty sure the cover of IDW's Half Century War number 5 was essentially this image that Adams drew here. And then a nice segment of using the atomic breath to take out another ship. The way that Adams draws the atomic breath, we see the, you know, the... I'm always... The way that Toho did Godzilla's Atomic Breath in Godzilla 2000, where we'd see it, the energy building in his mouth and then erupting out, always reminded me of the way that Adams drew it here. So it looks very similar to how we'd see it in Godzilla 2000, which I thought was a nice touch, considering, obviously, this was eight years prior to that. Uh, page 12, panel 1, we see a silhouette of Godzilla out in the ocean, and uh, we're looking over the heads of the villagers on the island. Just looks great. You know, very simple, all black. It's far away, it's not real detail, but just a really nice image. Uh, reminds me of when we see Godzilla in silhouette in um, Terror of Mech Godzilla when he first shows up in that film. Very nice page. Uh, turning over now to page 13, panel 3, we get uh, another great shot here of Godzilla showing his whole body 
Adams does this several times. What's interesting about this is getting to see the 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 proportions of the legs and the body and his arms. It's very clearly looking at it now the Hays, what we consider to be the Hayside or '90s Godzilla. Um, this very much looks in line with the Godzilla that we saw in Godzilla vs King Ghidorah, Godzilla vs Mothra, even with the big thighs, maybe even a little bit of Godzilla vs Mechagodzilla in there as well. So again, nice touch. I mean, it he looks great. Adams draws a great Godzilla. There's no question of it. But what I, I like looking at back at it now is how on model he stays and. It's amazing to me that he's saying he said that Toho didn't like the artwork because it just looks so good. It's it's hard to think what they wouldn't like about it. Um, page fifteen, panel one, we see the uh, shrine inside of the shrine to Kikido Jin, and Kikido Jin looks like a meaner version of Daimajin, um, if that's possible, because Daimajin's pretty mean. He's an oni wearing samurai armor, which is very unique among Toho's pantheon of monsters. It's not. You know, even, uh, you know, their, their intelligent monsters, you know, aren't of this um, medieval style, let's say, or feudal style, if you prefer. So that, I like Akito Jin. He, the original version of the film that would become Godzilla vs. Gigan, which uh, I believe had the pre-production title of Godzilla vs. Gigan Earth, De Earth Defense Directive, something like that, featured a character named Majin Tuol who would have been very similar to this, a giant Majin statue brought to life and uh, initially controlled by an alien and then uh, controlling itself to help uh, Godzilla fight off the invaders. Obviously, that film never came to pass, so I like to think of Gekito Jin kind of as a nod not only to Dai Majin, but also to the, the never-realized Majin Tuol. Um, pages 16 and 17, we get a flashback showing Gekito Jin's initial rampage on the island. Interesting color scheme. Gekito Jin is colored all black, but with red ink over it. So it's it, it stands out. It's very odd. It looks almost like a um, like a negative image, but not quite because of the red ink. It's very it, it's only lasts like I said two pages, but it's a very neat little sequence here from coloring standpoint. Uh, turning over now to page 19, panel one, we got a stare down between Godzilla and the statue of Gekito Jin. Um, reminds me tangentially. I'm, I'm getting a lot of these tangential reminders. Reminds me of Godzilla staring down the Godzilla statue in Godzilla vs. Gigan. So, uh, nice shot, though. It's a wide shot. We see the big size difference between Godzilla and Gekito Jin. Gekito Jin's statue barely coming up to right above Godzilla's knee. So it's it's pretty pretty much a mismatch at this point. But as we see, Gekito Jin gets... Uh, he evens, this, evens things up pretty quickly. Um... Page 24, um, panel 1, is when uh, we see Kojenta running out and get stomped along with the statue of Gekido Jin. Now, this stomp looks like, I mean, this is akin to Godzilla vs. Bambi. It's, I mean, it's, it's more than half the page. Godzilla's foot is so big it's actually not even contained entirely inside the panel. The panel cuts off some of his toes on either side. And the uh, the sound effect is an inch high boom, and it's oh it's it's just great. And then as if to add insult to injury, a couple panels later we see Godzilla stomping it three more times with thoom thoom thoom. So he just yike just grinding it in there. It's like ow, you can't even kind of make it after that. That's great. I mean, oh man, just gotta love it. And Adams makes it look so dynamic. And even though, you know, Godzilla is not super mobile, this isn't Zilla, he's still holding his hands up and walking fairly slowly, the dynamism in the art is just great, and the sense of motion and the debris flying everywhere, just wonderful to look at. Um, page 25, after stomping on the uh, shrine, Godzilla's rage is unleashed because he uses his atomic breath to utterly destroy all of the shrine, and it looks, again, like I said earlier... The way that Adams draws it looks great. Panels 2 and 3 are interconnected, and we see three different blasts of atomic breath as he works his way down, destroying uh, the shrine. And it's uh, the coloring here is also worth noting it. It's a lot of white, yellow, and orange. It really looks hot, you know, like a hot color scheme. Uh, great heat, really nice sequence. I'm reminded kind of how Carl Gafford, you know, does all the, the coloring in Shogun Warriors, which we'll talk about later in the episode, but very similar approach here. Page 26, panel 3, Gekido Jin stands revealed, and he looks ready to go to war. I love the design of Gekido Jin. One of these monsters that will be very difficult to pull off in live action, so doing it on 
an illustrated form, you take advantage of the medium that you're working in. His armor is very ornate. He has little tassels at his shoulders. Uh, he's got the big baggy Hakama pants. There's a wonderful skull motif on his armor. And he's got that big round war hammer. He's got two swords on his belt. He and, and he's got the big Oni face with the big green mug with the teeth. He just really looks good. I like Akito Jin. Unfortunately, this is the only time he shows up, which uh, is a, you know, that happens. But man, it'd be great to see him come back in some uh, some kind of format. Turning over to page 29, panel 1. Uh, after Godzilla blasts Akito Jin, he reforms for the first time. And then in uh, we see... It's, it's a shot from behind Gekido Jin looking up, and we see Godzilla in the background kind of crouching down, so his head is just inside the panel. He looks downright incredulous. He's like, what? I just blew you up. Why are you back? And again, no dialogue to work with, but a great bit of personality out of the King of the Monsters in, in this scene. And um, Gekido Jin's hunched-over um, body language shows his defiance as well, which I, I really like. Turning over now to page 33, panel 2. Um, we get the, the hot foot that uh, G-Force does on Godzilla, and it just looks absolutely painful. It's zakow is the sound effect, and it looks like Godzilla's foot has blown up, is essentially what it looks like. Uh, he's rearing back and roaring in pain. You can really see the agony that he's feeling in his foot. Really nice, and again, with the, the white, yellow, orange coloring, it really um, great design and great color on this little sequence here. I really like this bit, and this, what this serves to do is give Gekido Jin his opportunity to press the attack. Page 34 is that attack. It's Gekido Jin winding up and then smashing Godzilla in the face with his hammer. It's just three panels, but it's one powerful swing. Everything sells it. The third panel has extra panel lines around it, almost as if the impact of the thrack of the hammer smacking into Godzilla's uh, jaw is shaking the entire uh, panel like a shockwave. It's really subtle. You may not notice it the first time. I know, I guarantee you, I didn't notice it the first time I read it. But looking at it now, it stands out. It's just really great. And there's there's um, narration here, you know, dial narration boxes, but obviously no dialogue. It's just the two of them wailing on each other for a couple of pages. You know, uh, Gakito Jin hits an up, uh, kind of like a hook, and knocks Godzilla down. Then Godzilla blasts the hammer with atomic breath, and they're just piling on top of each other. It's a nice, it's not a super long fight. You know, it's not one of these 22-page uh, fights like we get sometimes in some of the uh, issues of um, uh, Rulers of Earth from IDW, but it's it's got enough to it that it feels meaty. You know, it it's very much like the Heisai fights in that sense. It's not super long, but it does a decent amount to it, at least. Turning over now to uh, page 36, panel 2. Nice aerial shot of both combatants. And I've always loved the, the dialogue, not the dialogue, the caption here. It says, no quarter is given, nor is any asked for. As a, as a preteen, that was like, oh yeah, that was just cool, because these two guys are just going to keep pounding on each other. There's nothing that can stop them. And that turns over to page 37, which is a full page, uh, single panel splash, of the pinup of Gekido Jin charging right at Godzilla and Godzilla going to grab him. Again, if the back cover wasn't a good enough pinup, this one is amazing. Either one of these would look fantastic as posters. And uh, if I ever became a billionaire as original art as well, I'm sure. It's just really nice. And um, again, we see all the detail, the, the little individual pieces of mail on Gekido Jin's um, armor. Uh, you know, the, the, the plates on the skirt on his the front and side on his uh, samurai armor, the ties around his wrist protectors, all the scales on Godzilla's hide, each individual tooth, you know, the lines on his tongue, everything, just really great detail without getting overwrought and muddy. Just really, really good. Uh, page 38, the two fall off the cliff. King Kong versus Godzilla, anybody? I think that's kind of a given. And then on page 40, after Godzilla finally destroys uh, Gekido Jin for the final time and moves off, we see a great shot underwater on the seafloor of the statue now of Gekido Jin standing, and and the top of the panel in the sort of in the background we see Godzilla swimming away. You know, uh, so he's standing guard on the island should the King of the Monsters ever return. I thought that was a nice little coda to the story as Ukamune. 
um, you know, uh, mourns for uh, Cogenta, saying, Godzilla is free to roam the world, but Cogenta's spirit is trapped forever. I tell you what, as a one-shot, it delivers a great adventure done in one story with lots of action. It's got an awesome new foe for Godzilla, with the promise that he could return. Of course, as I said, Gekito Jin never does return, but he's there. He's not dead. He's not off-planet. Just he, if he, Godzilla, ever comes back towards the island, Gekito Jin can be resurrected. And it has some of the greatest Godzilla comic book artwork of all time, as far as I'm concerned. Adams just knocks it out of the park completely, especially on the Daikaiju stuff. It's no real mystery, not to me anyway, why this comic has stuck with me for over 20 years and why I hold it in such high regard. As soon as I saw Art Adams was an announced guest at Heroes Con, this popped into my head immediately. I said, this is the book he has to sign. And it was the only book I brought. The guy behind me literally had a suitcase, a rolling suitcase full of books just for Art Adams to sign. I had my one Godzilla book. That's how, how much the art in this comic spoke to me as a young man and still uh, remains just one of the best examples of Daikaiju comics I've ever seen. Coming out when it did in the blind spot, like I said, after Godzilla 85, but before Godzilla vs. Biollante was released here in the States, to my mind, this is what the modern Godzilla should be. And in some ways we got some of this in the Heisai film, some way we got away from this, but, you know, th this to me, I always lump it right in there with those other Heisai adventures. And it's, it's just another story of the King of the Monsters. Just because it's a comic doesn't mean it's any less, you know, real, quote-unquote, than any of the movies. It's just, a, you know, a different medium for telling the story. But in my personal headcanon, this, this uh, takes place in, uh, you know, between Biollante and... Uh, uh, King of the Mon, uh, not King of the Mon, Godzilla vs. King Ghidra. So, <laughs> one of my absolute favorite comics of all time, bar none. No, not matter the genre, the publisher, anything. One of my absolute favorites right here, and I'm glad I got to read it again for this. And I'm so glad my copy is signed by Art Adams. If you take a look at the artwork uh, for this episode, you'll see I, I made that out of a scan of my actual copy with Art Adams' signature right there on Godzilla's mug. So, I'm. This, this was just a pleasure to break this one out again and read it. been a couple of years since I had read it, so really a lot of fun. All right, I'm going to take a quick break. We're going to be back with the next issue of Shogun Warriors, which is Shogun Warriors number 12, right here on Earth Destruction Directive. Imagine you enter the world of the Shogun Warriors. They're on the move. There's Raideen with Delta Wing missiles, Dragoon with a star shooter, and Mazinga with a rocket launcher. The Shogun! Imagine you command them to defend freedom, protect justice, and challenge Edo. The Shoguns! They're ready to strike when you are. Shogun warriors, Mazinga, Dragoon, Raideen, equipped with their own gear, each sold separately from Mattel. And we're back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Shogun Warriors number 12 from the Marvel Comics Group was cover dated January 1980 and released on October 2nd, 1979. Once again, thank you to Mike's Amazing World of Comics for that information. You can find it at dcindexes.com. Our writer is Doug Mensch, penciler Herb Trimpey, inker Jack Abel, letterer Diana Albers, colorist Carl Gafford, editor Alan Milgram, editor-in-chief, of course, Jim Shooter, and our title is The Moon Menace. In California, Kambatra lands, depositing Genji Odashu on the shore after her flight from Japan, the previous issue. Close by, Richard Carson finds his thoughts lingering on the multiple attacks the shoguns have faced recently, as well as the man in black who broke into his house, much to the annoyance of his squeeze, Dina. Dina is soon even more annoyed as Genji shows up at Carson's front door, starting an impromptu shogun pilot reunion. Genji asks if she can stay there for a little while, and this is too much for Dina, who storms out of the room to pack her things. At the Shogun Sanctuary, Dr. Tambura and his crew observe the giant meteor, spotted last issue, and run computer simulations showing global devastation if it should hit the Earth. Left with no other choice, followers of the light used a signal pendants to contact the Shogun pilots. Elango Savage is summoned at the Oceanography Research Center in Madagascar, being teleported away before he can tell his assistant slash love interest Judith what is happening. In California, Carson and Genji are similarly whisked away, right as Dina is entering the room to apologize for being jealous. Oops. At the sanctuary, 
The three pilots are happy to see each other, but the revelry soon ends as they are briefed on the meteor and quickly launch into space in their shoguns. During the flight, the pilots compare notes on their recent solo adventures, with the consensus being that those battles were more like tests than full-out combat. But the analysis will have to wait as they come upon the gargantuan meteor. Unleashing their arsenals upon the space rock, it shatters into pieces. The large core of the meteor continues on, but when it crashes into the shoguns, it too is nothing more than debris. Crisis averted, the pilots begin to celebrate when Elongo spots something hidden on the far side of the Earth's moon, a massive space station nearly one-third the size of the moon itself. With no markings to betray its origins, the shoguns move in for a closer look. Inside the station, its caped and masked controller welcomes the pilots into his trap and activates the station's defenses, blasting the shoguns with a massive barrage of energy. As Raideen and Kambatra are rocketed off towards deep space, Dangard Ace is caught in the gravity of the moon and slams into the lunar surface. The other two are not faring much better, as the speed at which they are traveling away from the moon is too great to overcome with their retro rockets before they run out of fuel, leaving them helpless. Back on the moon, Elongo groggily comes to, hours later. He is unable to move Dangard Ace, though, for outside, the Shogun has been tied to the moon rock by a team of space-suited men, like Gulliver by the Lilliputians. The commander of the team relays their status to the station controller, Dr. Demonicus, who orders Dangard Ace brought to the station, all while Raideen and Combatra drift deeper and deeper into cold space. Next, the Demonicus Scheme. Oh boy, things amping up this time in Shogun Warriors, I tell you what. Let's get into some notes. Our cover uh, shows the three Shoguns standing in the cityscape as a giant meteor appropriately comes crashing down towards them with the uh, cover text, Meteor! I was, like that movie with Sean Connery, why don't I stick a broom up my ash and I can sweep the carpet on my way out? Uh, that notwithstanding, it's kind of an odd perspective because we're, we're down low looking up at the meteor, but it's unclear where the Shoguns are actually standing in relation to the cityscape they're standing among. Because it looks like Dangard Ace is like standing on top of the buildings, and maybe Riding's on the street. Uh, it's it's just yeah, it just doesn't do it for me. I do have to say I really do like Trimpy's continued use of the small human figures. We see them running away and panicking. One guy's actually falling off a cliff, or not a cliff, falling off the building, which is kind of mm, that's a little odd. It does a great job of showing the scale. Because if you just looked at this, you might just think these were normal-sized robots, necessarily. You won't necessarily immediately think, oh, they're giant robots, if you're not familiar with the Shogun Warriors property. It's alright. Not one of the better Shogun Warriors covers so far. And admittedly, we've had some good ones. Uh, let's turn on to the book itself now. Page 1 is a splash page, showing Combatra landing on the California coast from the rear. Kind of an odd uh, page. I mean, the story's gotta start somewhere. There's not a whole lot of action. Here, just Combatra landing. What I do like, though, is the nice bit of continuity of the back of Combatra looks the same every time we see it, with the little treads and the, the ports on his shoulders and the red stripe and stuff. So it's it, the Shoguns so far, Trimpy's done a good job of showing them throughout the series, looking consistent from all angles. And sometimes, you know, I, I like to think that Trimpy had a set of the Shoguns on his, on his drawing desk so he could look at them and look at them from different sides and get the idea, but that may just be fanboyish, wishful thinking on my part. Uh, pages 2 through 5, as Dina walks around Carson's apartment, we get the return of Bikini Girls! Because she is wearing this teeny tiny little black number, along with uh, what looks like one of Carson's shirts over top of it. And man, she looks fine, you know. Uh, I can understand why she's getting ticked off here. Um, I mean, wow, that's all I gotta say about that. Also, and this is really weird, on page three... Uh, while trying to get uh, Carson's uh, full attention, she says, Oh, did I mention that Playboy wants to do a spread on me? The beautiful, death-defying stunt girl in her birthday suit. To which Carson's response is, Sounds kinky. She's like, Kinky? I'm, I'm just amazed that Dina makes a joke about posing for a Playboy in a code book. Not just a code book, a code book based on a kid's toy property. That was just amazing. And I checked it. It's approved by the Comics Code. That's a little risque for 1979, isn't it? Maybe some of you guys that were reading comics around this time, maybe that was such a broad joke that it wouldn't have been considered risque. But, you know, that's, that, was a, that, was a, that made me laugh the first time I saw it. 
Um, pages six and seven, the followers of light do their simulation on what will happen if the meteor strikes the earth. This seems to me like kind of a waste of time because once you see the first one that, you know, things, bad things are going to happen, do you need to keep watching them? It's like the beginning of Galactica 1980, where they do the simulation of what will happen if the Cylons attack earth on 1980. And it's like, don't we, they, they wiped out the 12 colonies which were technologically far superior to 1980s Earth. Why do we need to see a simulation? That's just me. And I don't want to talk about Galactica 1980 because, frankly, it's not good. But anyway. Uh, page 10, this is where the um, Tambora and his crew start teleporting the Shogun pilots. And what I like about this, the teleportation effect, we get the outline of the body of the person being teleported, and then they're all in orange with black Kirby crackle. And then uh, there's a yellow field around them with ec like echoey lines of their silhouette. Very neat little teleport effect. It's kind of a play on the way they did the, the transporter, obviously, on Star Trek, but it looks neat here with the orange and the Kirby crackle. Being a, uh, a Kirby fan, I always enjoy a nice uh, bit of Kirby crackle. And again, the orange and yellow coloring by Carl Gafford. I know I've made that comment about Gafford's um, effects coloring, as I like to call it. But it bears, it bears repeating as far as I'm concerned. Um, page 14, we get to see uh, the team running to the um, hangar and shimmer tubing into their robots and then blasting off. Uh, it's, it's like the, you know, on a super robot anime or tokusatsu, you'd get a bit of stock footage that they might show in every episode to show exactly this of the hero preparing and launching into combat. That's exactly what this sequence is. And you don't need, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying that is a negative thing. That's what you need that, you know, they have to go and launch. And so it's a nice little, uh, nice little uh, montage, if you will, of that sequence. Uh, page 15 panels three through five as the Shogun pilots, recount their latest experiences. We get little cameos from the monsters they fought on their own. We get the Hand of Five, the Star Child, and Cerberus. Uh, it's a really nice ongoing story program here, especially for, you know, really a quote-unquote kids book. I think that Mensch does a good job of kind of building the story up and over a, a number of issues developing this plot line that really starts to play out in this issue. Um, page 15, panel 6, a little bit later on down that same page, we get a cameo from uh, the NASA lunar rover and the American flag on the moon as the shoguns fly by. Very nice little bit of patriotism. I like that. Uh, page 18, panel 1, in order to destroy the uh, meteor, the shoguns unleash their firepower. The meteor itself, it's just a big hunk of flaming rock, but this whole sequence looks really great. Very comic booky, if you follow what I mean. You know, I don't know that you could really pull this off as effectively in any other medium except a comic. And I always love using the comic medium to its the advantage of the story. And this, this sequence is a good demonstration of that. The next page, page 19, is a pinup of the three shoguns holding, uh, locking their arms together to form basically a wall for the core of the meteor to crash into. And then we just see it shattering off in all sorts of directions. The shoguns totally no-sell the meteor. Gotta love it, you know. It's like Andre the Giant up in here. Um, turning over now to page 22, panel 1, we get our first glimpse, a very, um, look, basically looking at his elbow and ribcage of Dr. Demonicus, who will become a, uh, a much bigger threat, I suspect, for our Shogun pilots going forward. But, uh, you know, we haven't seen a, a human threat to the Shoguns in quite a while, not since Lord Malakon, who has not returned since... Uh, the end of that storyline, way back before the solo adventures when, uh, you know, geez, that was um, like six or seven issues ago at this point. So good to see some human foes again to, to menace the Shogun pilots. Um, little on down the page, we get uh, panel six. The space station itself is hiding in the shadows of the moon. Now this immediately brings my mind to Moonraker. It's a very similar scene in Moonraker where... Uh, when Bond and Dr. Goodhead are in the shuttle and they come across and uh, Moonraker um, station, the Moonraker space station moves out of the shadow of the Earth and comes into sharp um, relief. And my first thought was, okay, well, that was only, that, that can't be a coincidence. Moonraker was released a few months before this book. So did Trimpy like the scene in Moonraker? Did... 
um, you know, did Doug Mensch like that bit in Moonraker and decide to, to use it a little bit? It's it's not sure, but it is very reminiscent of the scene of Moonraker, and I'm willing to go with it. You know, that was just the that was the style of the times in the late '70s. You know, it was generally accepted. Yeah, yeah, space stations—they're coming. You're going to be living in space in 15 years. You know, uh, so. I, I like the use of it, and it's a great visual here, too. This nice space station with the uh, the moon framing it, and then the three shoguns flying in from the right-hand side of the panel. Uh, the next page, panel three, <laughs> Carson makes a joke that if the space station was American, it would have been a, had a bigger ad campaign than Dino De Laurentiis' Kong remake. This literally made me laugh out loud when I read it the first time. I absolutely love that. You know, only a couple of years after... Kong 76, it's already becoming jokey fodder. I thought that was just great. A lot of... <laughs> I wonder if that's a little bit of uh, of Mensch's personal opinion on the remake of Kong poking through there. Uh, turning over to page 26, panels 1 through 3. You know, I mentioned like at the top of the, um, the recap, talking about the cover, that Trimpy uses small figures to convey the scale of the Shoguns. Here, we get the same thing, but even more so. The Shoguns themselves are now the small figures in these panels as they fly and approach the space station. And it puts over just how massive the space station is. You know, the, the dialogue said it was a third the size of the moon. Well, none of us have been to the moon. You know, but we but we recognize how big the Shoguns are because we've seen them interacting with the pilots and other humans. So this really sells the sense of scale on just how giant Demonicus's space station is. I really like it. It's a very nice work by Trimpy to keep the scale and perspective uh, throughout this sequence. Uh, turning over to page 27, panel 3, after being blown um, back away from the space station by its defenses, uh, Dangard Ace is, as I said, caught in the lunar uh, gravity and pulled down. And panel 3 shows Dangard crashing into the surface with his neck and shoulders first, and youch, that looks like it hurts. You can only imagine what Savage is going through being bounced around the cockpit after that impact. Just, just ouch, is all you can say to that. Sticking with Dangard Ace, turning over to the last page, page 31, panel 4 is uh, an obvious nod to Gulliver's Travels, as I said, with uh, Dangard Ace being staked and tied to the ground. But again, using the small figures... Uh, Trimpy does a good job showing us the scale. I really like this panel. Just the, the gag of it being like Gulliver's Travels is funny, but it's a well-executed panel in and of itself, and we get to see a full shot of Dangard Ace uh, laying prone sprawled out, and I like that we see the men running around doing work all around him. There's one guy actually on top, there's a couple of guys on top of him rigging lines down. There's one you can see is pulling a line down from the guys that have thrown it. Nice little work. And then, uh, right in set onto that, panel 5, Dr. Demonicus is revealed for the his, all his glory. He looks like he shops at the same tailor as the Dread Knight from Iron Man, uh, but he certainly looks the role of a Bronze Age Marvel supervillain. Um, got little horns on his uh, purple and skull-faced mask. He's got a cape. He's got a big flared collar. You know, he's got stripes across. He's got, uh, looks like two, it looks like pistols on his side there. I'll be interested to see more of Dr. Demonicus. I'm familiar with him from his appearances in Iron Man, uh, but I'll be very, very much looking forward to reading the future appearances of this guy in this character. Uh, it's a transitional issue in that we're moving away from the solo uh, threats that had been dominating the series for the last couple of months, and the cover threat of the meteor itself is dealt with quickly. But the last third of this book, which uh, introduces Dr. Demonicus and his space station, that was a really nice twist, and it seems like Milgram is shifting the story he's been building into high gear, like I said. I like the nice building up of this story. The cliffhanger's excellent, you know. How do you stop accelerating in space? It's, it's a legitimate scientific question. And uh, the art team is consistent, and, you know, I've said this before, it's not the greatest looking book in the world, but... It's solid, has some really nice touches here and there. It's a lot of fun to read. It's a lot of fun just to flip through and look at the art. My interest is really peaked for the next installment between the cliffhanger and the introduction of Demonicus and the kind of, uh, you know, turn that the story is taking. I'm really looking forward to reading number 13. Like I said, this is all new to me, so uh, I'm just as surprised as you guys are as we're reading through these. So. Uh, let's see, ads? Uh, let's see, let's take a look through. We got a... Um... Uh, Crossman Air Guns. They'd never let them put those in comics today. Oh, we have new electronic action toy. Rom has come. Evil is on the run. Rom the Space Knight. Gotta love it. 
I love I love the way these are written too. Rom's energy analyzer lights up bright red and makes strange electronic sounds. Pretend it allows Rom to see if creatures are good or evil. Every time I read the pretend, uh, it's just no. I'm really gonna use it. It's actually not a toy. It's an actual energy analyzer. Uh, let's see. Mighty Marvel's big money-saving holiday offer. Their uh, subscription page. I just like this one because Luke Cage is in the. Uh, we've got a wreath with circles with horror headshots and Luke Cage is in there. Uh, which I like, and he's actually sort of smiling, which Cage didn't do a lot this time. Uh, let's see, we got a two-page spread right in the middle for Star Wars toys. Now, from the greatest movie of all time, comes the Kenner Star Wars toy collection. I like these. There's no actual pictures of the toys. It's all just uh, artist renditions. And uh, uh, these, I, you got, I'm, anyone from familiar reading Marvel Comics in this time knows this ad. It's, it's really nice. They have the Land of the Jawas, the Imperial Troop Transport, the uh, star- die-cast collection, all the Star Wars action figures, Star Wars Creature Cantina, and more. Uh, let's see, we got a, actually an ad for ROM, the comic, uh, which I thought was nice, getting two ROM, house ad- or two ROM ads in the same book. Blazing new paths of glory in the Marvel Universe, imagineered by Bill Mantlo and Sal Buscema. Gotta love ROM, the space knife. Uh, let's see, we get uh, Bullpen Bolton's page, including the Mighty Marvel Checklist. Uh, Epic Illustrated is what they're hyping in the bullpens page this month. And then, um, let's see, we get Superhero Cars on the inside back cover from Corgi. We get the Batman collection as well as the Superman collection, which is very nice. I still really like that Daily Planet helicopter and the Daily Planet uh, newspaper truck with the headline says, Superman saves the world! I like that one. And uh, shout out to Jack Dower, the Penguin Crate vehicle, which looks like a uh, old... Woody Hot Rod with an umbrella on it, prominently featured here. Also, we get the Wonder Woman convertible and a sports car for Captain Marvel. Uh, wouldn't Wonder Woman's car also be invisible? Just a thought. We do get a hostess ad in the Human Torch in the Ice Master Cometh. And I want to say I've read this one on this show, so I'm not going to read it again. But I do just want to mention, of course, the Ice Master transitioned from hostess ad villainy into the actual marvel universe and was featured in the masters of evil that was featured in the first year or two of thunderbolts back in the 90s and i remember at the time it was a big thing oh i'm uh you know that a character not originally created in the marvel universe was going to be uh part of the uh part of the masters of evil and it ended up being the ice master so the question now begs does this mean all of them are part of continuity or just him i like to think all of them are that's just me um so that's it that's all i got on uh, shogun warriors number 12 i thought this was a good issue myself i'm really enjoying this series and from some of the feedback i've been getting it sounds like um uh, a lot of you guys are enjoying hearing me talk about it so i'm glad i'm glad that it's really held up i'm looking forward to seeing number 13 all right i'm going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back to wrap up the show here on earth destruction directive we gotta get out of this place In-Country has re-upped for another tour, and we've been reassigned. Now you can find this complete look at Marvel Comics' The Nom on the Two True Freaks Network. So join me, Tom Panneries, for In-Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics' The Nom, every two weeks at twotruefreaks.com. Alright, we are back on Earth Destruction Directive, and now it's time for a little bit of listener feedback. Our first email comes from Eric Lamont, and Eric a subject of Big Fun. And Eric writes, I just discovered your podcast among the offerings available on the Two True Freaks webpage. Hey, twotruefreaks.com. We've got something like 38, 39 different podcasts, I think, at this point, and north of 1400 individual episodes for your enjoyment so check it out i guarantee you'll find something you like eric continues i am a big fan of big monsters but i'm an even bigger fan of herb trimpy while working my way through the archive it's your coverage of the shogun warriors comic that is keeping me coming back for more the fact that it's trimpy drawing giant robots versus giant monsters only adds to the excitement he is an often underrated slash overlooked talent in the comics industry. While he may have lacked the dynamic flair of some of his contemporaries, Trimpy was slash is a reliable, solid storyteller and an imaginative artist in his own right, and he draws the heck out of the Shogun Warriors. 
I'm looking forward to your coverage of the remaining issues in the Shogun series, as well as your coverage of other giant monster-related subjects. The variety of related topics you include, such as movies, games, toys, and comics, is one of the great strengths of your podcast. Keep up the great work. Stomp, stomp, stomp. Signed, Eric Lamont. Eric, thank you very much for writing in. I agree with you. I really like Trimpy's work. I like his stuff, like on Incredible Hulk, from the same period in the 70s. And it, that was the book that made me think he'd be a good fit on Shogun Warriors when I started reading it. Because really, what is the Hulk? It's a monster fighting other worse monsters, right? Or a monster fighting sometimes giant robots. Or a monster fighting the military. So him working on a super robot type book where it's robots fighting monsters, that just means like it makes perfect sense. You know, a lot of times in the 70s of Marvel, that you know, you talk about Barry Windsor Smith or Sal Buscema, you know, you don't, Trimpy never really gets brought up. But I agree, he's, I mean, his, his stuff is always good. And it's, again, it's not the flashiest style in the world, but his stuff always looks good. It's one of those things that it's really kind of the, I, I hate to say house style, but when I think Marvel Bronze Age, Trimpy's stuff is a lot of times what pops into my head. And I'm glad you're enjoying cover the coverage of Shogun Wars. I'm enjoying the heck out of reading them. So I'm, I'm glad that, you know, we're both on the same wavelength when it comes there. And, uh, you know, going forward, we're going to be doing the Marvel Godzilla series after that. So more in the same type of era, same type of uh, uh, stuff. So I'm hoping you'll enjoy that as well. And thank you again also for the comment about the uh, different, uh, uh, you know, related materials. You know, there's so much to the world of Daikaiju that, you know, you could talk about it endlessly. And I apparently do sometimes, judging by the lengths of some of my shows. And, you know, it's a natural thing to, you know, it's like, well, you know, I'm, it's a Godzilla video game. I got to get this, you know. And, you know, you can't be in Daikaiju long without getting into toys and stuff like that. So I'm glad that you're enjoying it. And I uh, hope that uh, you uh, continue to enjoy the show. And thank you very much for writing in. Also, uh, I got an email from Derek Crabb of the Fanholes Podcast, which you can find at fanholespodcast.blogspot.com. And uh, he sent me a little note just saying, only felt right to give EDD some love at the end of the show. Uh, Derek um, hosts one of the Fanholes sub-podcasts, which is called Toku Thursdays, where they watch uh, tokusatsu shows and give their thoughts on it. Uh, they recently did, I think, Ultraman Taro was a... Um, Episode 6, I want to say, of that show. And Derek, I want to say thank you very much. Oh, not Taro. Excuse me. It's Ultraman 80. That's what it was. Not Taro. Um, but I want to say thanks for the shout-out. Fanholes Podcast is a really good... Uh, they cover all sorts of different stuff. I first became aware of them. Um, they did a Doctor Who uh, episode. And uh, the Doctor Who X Ultraman uh, show I did with Shag ended up being brought up. And they uh, they kind of gave, gave us a shout-out for that. And so I've been checking them out. Really good stuff. Give Derek and his crew a listen again fanholespodcast.blogspot.com and tell them Luke sent you. I'm sure they'll appreciate that. All right, if you want to write in to Earth Destruction Directive, go ahead and email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. You can also find me on Facebook, uh, Earth Destruction as the first name, Directive as the last name, as per the requirements of my Demonscore contract. Also, if you want to get in touch with me on Twitter, it's at ljacone, L-J-A-C-O-N-E. Okay, next time on Earth Destruction Directive, what are we going to be covering? Well, we are going back to the small screen and taking a look at the next two episodes of the original Subaraya series, Ultraman, Episode 7 and 8. Episode 7 features the monster Antlar, and Episode 8, one of the most well-regarded and well-known episodes of Ultraman, features the monster Shandor, a Red King, Maglar, and Pigmon in the Lawless Monster Zone. We will also be taking a look at Shogun Warriors number 13 from the Marvel Comics Group, continuing the adventures. How will uh, Carson and Oda Genji get out of being drifted into deep space while Savage and Dangard Ace are tied down to the surface of the moon? What does Dr. Demonicus have in store? I'm waiting with bated breath and I'm not being sarcastic. I really want to go home and grab my next issue and check it out. And we'll have uh, any news, your emails, anything else that might come up that's uh, appropriate for the show. So if you have any news, go ahead and send it in. If you have any emails, comments, complaints, criticisms, dirty jokes, I'm totally ripping off Andrew Leyland with that little bit. Go ahead and send it in, and we'll get you on the show. So come on back next time for some Ultraman and Shogun Warriors action. And until then, keep them stomping. This has been Earth Destruction.
Destruction Directive, a Daikaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, we will read them on the show. If you'd like to visit our forum, you can head over to www.forumforgeeks.com and come on down to the Two True Freaks section. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head over to twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Anything you buy during your next Amazon session after clicking that link will help keep the lights on here at Two True Freaks. You can also find me on Twitter with the handle LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.